Um, I'd like to just finish off on gas, uh, if I could, and then we'll go on to one of the other subjects. I mean, one of the things that I ended up working a lot a year ago about was the potential for bringing LNG into the European market uh, and the opening up of the terminals in Svenisje and um, Klaipeda. Um, at the time, it just looked like this wasn't going to be a big factor uh, in Europe in the immediate future. The prices were too high. The shipments were going to Korea and Japan. The pricing seems to be changing um, quite dramatically. Um, this many of the member states have found the importance of having these terminals as leverage in price negotiations. Um, could you just, Georg, I mean, could you start off just giving me your picture of what sort of role you see LNG playing over the next five years or so in the, in the European picture? It's always difficult getting getting question on on individual technologies as an uh, as an economist. But as my my vision of LNG typically is one of an insurance. It's more like mm. a backup that you can draw on in case uh, something happens. And uh, this something that could happen has become much more concrete than uh, than one two years ago than two years ago. So therefore, I think member states and, and companies understand much better what LNG infrastructure could be good for. So price negotiations and having a backup in case uh, you don't get deliverables, uh, deliveries. In terms of outlook, it's difficult to tell because um, Yes, we are potentially facing an LNG cloud in uh, 2016-2020. Uh, mm. might uh, see declining prices, but on the other hand, the rest of the market is also dynamically reacting to that. So whether the share of LNG in the European fuel mix will increase or decrease is not for me to tell. Tommy? Yes. Again, LNG is a very good thing, but it shows how in the past it has developed in silo and mm -hmm. how the energy union can address it. Uh, and there is in the paper energy union uh, and I, uh, the ambition to have an LNG strategy. Mm. Don't develop an LNG strategy disconnected from first internal gas market and second, of course, consumption and third, disconnecting from other projects which are pipelines and not LNG. The lessons. If you look at diversification strategies since 2006-07, the South Zone Gas Corridor, the real diversification in terms of suppliers and transit routes that occurred was LNG, no pipelines. So everyone invested in LNG, a lot of capacities, especially in certain countries, Spain, etc. Without looking at infrastructures and without looking at the integration of the internal market. So today we have capacities which are used for a quarter of their potential what at the same time we have countries we are, we, who are missing gas within their national borders. So this is something which is quite mm. striking. And the other thing, so please connect this LNG strategy with internal market and with other, with all internal and external dimension of this market. On this external dimension of this market, you question the southern gas corridor, south stream, etc. What is striking me is that at the origin, this was a European project called Nabucco, Naive, etc., etc., with European companies involved. Today, what we see is additional capacities of gas coming from Azerbaijan, and Azerbaijan is controlling the supply, the transit, and very soon the distribution. Within the European Union, no single European company involved 
So, of course, it's not about member states, it's about the business, the private sectors to manage the security of the supply. No European company. And South Stream, you had European companies, and tomorrow it will be a Russian-Turkish project without European companies involved. <coughs> so, this is uh, some lessons that we should all think about now that we have a few years of experience. Yeah, thank you. I would like to disappoint you no. and uh, half of the audience and all the panelists. Um, I'm totally unable to foresee, I'm totally unable to make any analysis. I discuss with people to get to get ideas. And I was in Latin America two days ago. I did discuss with uh, the guy being the Shell Gas professor in Houston, Texas, and another guy being advisor of the Brazilian government for energy. None of them can tell me what is going to happen in the LNG market. And both of them did tell me that in the five past years, they made terrible mistakes into forecasting. So I will retreat. I will say, Margot, you are there. Uh, Jan Ingversen, you are there. Tell me what uh, LNG is becoming. And in five years' time, I will tell you how wrong you are. <laughs> <laughs> Just a, a follow-up on, on Sami's point, uh, because I think that's precisely the point. It's not just LNG, it's <laughs> the entire system yeah. of gas consumption and production and beyond uh, of energy production and consumption it in, in somewhat holistic way uh, needs to be uh, looked at. The, um, the question I'm asking myself is, is it the market or is it the government that should provide for that? And that's maybe a, 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 a question to, to be really also addressed to, to the Commission at this point of, uh, of discussing energy union. Because, yes, we can go there and incentivize new LNG terminals. Uh, I think tools are available with connecting Europe facility and what have you. And you can put more money on that. You can build uh, additional pipelines with... Uh, uh, with government grants, uh, Southern Gas Corridor, and uh, and what have you. Or you can say, well, we have a rather clearly defined product. We have a, a rather clearly defined problem. The problem mm -hmm. is, as soon as there is a cheap supplier, everybody goes there and buys cheap. And if there is uh, some problem with it, and it's blackmailing all of us, then we are in trouble. Mm -hmm. um, so we need some reserve supplies, we need some insurance, but nobody is willing to provide this insurance because there is no market for this insurance. So let's create a market for this insurance. Let's say there is every supplier in Europe has the obligation to make sure that 20% of the capacity he has somewhere either in storage or an additional contract or an LNG terminal capacity mm -hmm. or what have you. And then we trade those things and maybe it's becoming pretty cheap to do so, or we do it the, the good old national way, we just go there and the member states build the pipelines. But then you can somewhat forget about the, uh, about the gas market, because if the, the state is providing all that, then no private investor will come and do anything there, because there's simply no, no money to be made anymore. Uh, John, I know, I mean, uh, on the role of the state. Well, uh, I think that's I want to remind you what I said about uh, the attitude of the member states vis-à-vis -vis infrastructure to be uh, looked at from the European perspective. And uh, it took 20 years to develop it. So I think that um, uh, it is really for the internal market to optimize the infrastructures we have. And I think that's really the key question. And uh, today, who are the tools to, to uh, 
to, to achieve that, so I think to a large extent, is the 10-year the network development plan to be prepared by the TSOs mm. on the transmission system. Uh, and I think in the field of gas, we need to include in all this uh, storage and LNG terminal, and we need to ensure that they are well connected and mm. they may work in a coordinated way when needed. Uh, so I think that uh, when we are talking about LNG strategy, uh, I think the issue is, is first of all to ensure that all these infrastructures are able to contribute to the well-functioning of the internal market. That would be, in my view, the, the, the only thing which is important. Otherwise, you will uh, go to uh, stranded assets. And to, to respond to your question, clearly the member states have always considered the infrastructure as their territory. So even if you have the TSO who are managing the infrastructure and who are promoting the infrastructures, the last word is for the member states. So it is the member states which is approving the uh, plans for infrastructure. So that's a reality. In other words, uh, this is a matter for the member states to, uh, to be fully involved in uh, the, the, uh, the, the identification of the infrastructures which are needed. And I think the regulation on infrastructure of 2013 is doing that because by setting regional groups which are made of the member states' administration, of the TSO, of the regulators who are setting the tariff for the return on infrastructure, is the right way to ensure that once these three agree on the need for an infrastructure, you are close to what is needed for the, the market. But that's something to be checked and to avoid the stranded assets because you, you see some, well, some LNG terminal have mm -hmm. been decided just purely on the basis of security of supply. Mm -hmm. uh, well, in the Baltics, the, the Klaipeda one has been done by the Lithuanians, where we were mm. trying to promote a regional uh, terminal, mm. which is not yet there. So, but they went, uh, and they have a negotiation in 2015 with Gazprom to renew their, their gas agreement. The fact that they have no an infrastructure, which is uh, allowing mm. them to get alternative supply, is giving them, of course, a strong uh, position in their negotiation with Gazprom. So that's the reality. So, uh, and uh, the Lithuanians have done it on the basis of their energy independence. But yeah. I think that again is just because we were not yet in the energy union. So we could have done better probably, but okay, it's, it's something which is uh, mm. work in progress. And uh, I am not uh, pessimistic. I think we're always going in the right direction, but no, it's time to get this yeah. additional step of quality which will be leading to cost effectiveness because up to now probably we may see but you know we come from nowhere if you think the trans-european network for energy in 2006 the decision was a compilation of all the national plans of the member states and we had 500 or 600 look today at how many of these projects have been completed many were just abandoned because there the, 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 there was a change of government and the sponsors mm. and things like that so today in the infrastructure we have now with the regulation infrastructure a process to identify the projects which are of common interest and we will have
analysis we have we will have cross-border cost allocation and things and that so all the tools are there to yeah. do the infrastructure we really need and i think that's that has to be fully implemented and on that on that tools and the speed i mean clipeda which you mentioned i think was one of the fastest ever recipients of state aid clearance from dg comp as well so i mean on that target o'brien i mean sort of the role of the the states and the uh, the commission working together at speed on those uh, those projects and just a small correction it's the commission that gives state aid clearance not dg comp oh okay <laughs> dg comp proposes but the commission yeah. <laughs> but i think actually it, it's worth pointing out at the end that that is true that it is the the, the, the college that makes the decision um so we started off here and i can't i'm trying to trace back what in my now mess of a series yeah. of notes where this, this this started, and um, it was about what's going to happen with LNG, and um, and, and basically Jean-Michel said something around the lines: prediction is very hard, particularly about the future, and which brought me to another thing, which is true. And the second thing that it makes me think: well, if this is all easy, we wouldn't be here. The whole series of things that we're doing now—it's not like that we can simply go to the library and get a <coughs> textbook, energy economics, and there's the answer. We just have to implement it. Um, I mean, has ever, have, have all investment decisions in the past been uh, fully rational? Probably not. Some of those mistakes have been made by individual investors who have lost their short, and some of those mistakes have been made by sponsoring member states, either through direct or indirect support. Um, have there been benefits even to ones that you look back and say maybe it wasn't the best solution? I think the answer is yes. So not, nothing is completely wasted in this in the situation, but, and I think, and this is where I echoing what Jean-Michel says, if, if we look forward, there are ways to ensure that we get a better approach at a regional level and at a European level. I mean, I think the work that has been done in the 10-year uh, network development plans, if you read through it, it looks very carefully at what might be happening in terms of individual projects for LNG or for storage. Um, On top of that, I think there's a, another important point that we, we have to remember, which is that with the, with the energy union, the aim also is that the um, strategies and the individual components of it that we see set out in the LNG strategy is set out in the, as one of the outcomes in the, in the roadmap in the annex at the end. It doesn't happen by itself. It won't happen by itself. I mean, at the very least, it's going to be the same people signing off on it. And the aim, and the very strong aim of this, is to ensure that we have a coherent approach from the beginning. The LNG strategy is part of a heading, and forgive me if I get it slightly wrong, it comes under a heading of building a diverse, a resilient and diverse energy market, a gas supply, gas market. And so it has to be seen as fundamentally as belonging critically and centrally to that. It doesn't stand by itself. Now, we could call everything a strategy in this a policy document or that, but that's not the point. The point is that they are going to be thought of together with the same people probably working on it and the same people signing off on it and coming to an internal process inside the commission that signs off and puts these forward. The hope is then is that we can get that to be implemented and to be seen and to drive and help drive investment decisions in regions, in member states and across Europe. Um, I, I won't actually make that the last guest question because I was just thinking with, with, with <laughs> yesterday uh, and the um, what we were discussing about the notion of transparency, 
came together what in many ways just seems to be the starting gun of what could be quite a long discussion process of what this really means. What does transparency in this market mean? Um, we've got some ideas floating out there of voluntary aggregated demand, um, clubbing together to buy bigger, bigger volumes. Uh, to what extent the Commission plays a, a role? I mean, you mentioned the intergovernmental agreement, certainly... Um, uh, Mr. Tusk would like to see that go a bit deeper. He would like to see that go into the idea of commercial private contracts as well. Um, just, I mean, your feelings really on uh, how this can change the landscape of the way we buy our gas uh, over the next um, over the next few years. Um, maybe Jean Arnaud, you said you said earlier that you had some experience of like the Turkmen. Uh, contracts where they would they would seek to buy in large aggregated volumes um i mean say is is that something that's that can work here as well well precisely i think the whole idea of uh, purchasing uh, mechanism uh, comes from the uh, caspian development corporation which is something the commission was working on since uh, 2007 2008 so uh, it led uh, to 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 a lot of uh, <laughs> of ideas, and not least from uh, the, the, the Jacques Delors Institute in 2010 with a common purchasing mechanism, which uh, then was translated in France with Centrale d'Achat Européenne for gas. Uh, and um, I, I think uh, Mr. Tusk came back with the idea in, in April uh, last year. And um, personally, I, I think it's, it's a bad idea. Uh, except in the case of Turkmenistan or a similar supplier, because the Turkmen situation is very simple. They say, we are ready to sell to the EU uh, 30 billion cubic meter a year, and uh, you, you take it uh, on the shore of the Caspian Sea, you build the Trans-Caspian pipeline and uh, the, the further pipeline and so on. So, and, um, you know, I have explained to the Turkmen's uh, EU is not China. We are working with different uh, economy in our system. It's uh, uh, companies, commercial <laughs> companies, which are taking the risk of the purchase of gas. And, uh, and uh, the, the risk they take is the also uh, enabling the, uh, the financing of the infrastructure. You know, we went even with the World Bank and all the bankers to explain to the Turkmen's how is this working. Mm. But um, so they have maintained that. And that's why we have said, well, what do you think if you have a single purchaser and things like that with a, an aggregation mechanism and so on? So uh, the studies which have been made by Sarah, by the way, for the commission are, are public and are published on the website. So you may see all what are the conditions for having this uh, properly done. So this is a very specific case where you, we, we would like to have more Caspian uh, Sea gas, definitely. But we're, uh, we are not China and we cannot decide just to buy uh, and, and guarantee and, and build the pipeline as the Chinese did. So that's, that's it. Uh, but the, the, the model in which we are working is an internal market. So and the single market is based on the freedom of all the gas companies to source the gas where they get mm -hmm. the best price. So there is competition between the gas companies inside the EU to supply the consumers and to source the gas where, where it's the best. And to a large extent, this has worked because the diversification of gas supply in the EU uh, has tremendously changed since 2000. So, you know, in 2000, 50% of the exports, uh, of the imports of gas 
to the EU were coming from Russia. Today is 30%. So it is showing that the diversification policy, which has been led by all the member states, is working. So, uh, and we have now implemented a lot of rules in the internal markets where we have gas to gas competition. So any gas coming into the EU is European gas mm -hmm. and has the ability to flow everywhere. That's the result of the unbundling and the removal of the destination clause and so on. So I think that's what we can do best for the consumer. So I think that uh, uh, maybe in some case you may say, but at a more local uh, level, well, you know, the common purchasing exists for municipalities in France so, mm. uh, and they are buying their gas uh, together. Well, I in Belgium, the, the, the Consumer Association is orga organizing common purchasing of electricity and 200,000 consumers are asking the Consumer Association to auction uh, for, for the mm. best price. So. I think that's something you, you see, and uh, so, but um, uh, if it is to source gas from, from Russia uh, with a, a central centralization of the contract uh, supervised by the Commission or an uh, EU institution, I don't believe this is a good mm. idea, mm -hmm. so, uh, yeah. Um. I just want to complement this because that's really the key point. Uh, we can buy gas together within the European Union the internal market allows it, where it's free competition, the internal market allows it. But we cannot do it outside the EU borders, because then it would be a very big issue of competition, etc. This doesn't make sense. Japanese can do it. Japanese companies are buying gas together to uh, external suppliers. But in Europe, we cannot do it. And what's funny is that Sometimes there is a demand from the suppliers themselves to do it. Sometimes there is a demand from some companies or countries, etc., to do it. But then we are discussing a single, a single buyer. It's interesting because we are discussing something that no one wants and that no one has never proposed. How can you explain that? Tago Brian. Mind what you said? We're discussing something that nobody's proposed. No, I mean, I think I, I, just wanted, yeah, I just wanted to put, say, as you said, on one thing, okay, I, I presume that the buyers' collectors have looked, if they think it's in breach of competition law, I presume they've talked to some good competition lawyers and have come to the conclusion that it is. Yeah. If they haven't, that's a different thing, but it's it's a matter for, for them in the first instance to assess whether the ideas they have would be in breach of competition law. If they don't even have the idea, again you ask yourself, well, what exactly are we proposing? Um, and that comes down to, so this, this is just one aspect of the thing, and I, I mentioned it in my presentation. If there are, if there are specific circumstances where something like this can make sense, in emergencies or to deal with emergencies, then that can be looked at. And that is something the Commission will be looking at and studying. But it's not the vision for the internal energy market is of single buyers. Certainly not single buyers at a national level or at a European level. Without preventing uh, individual companies from within competition law exercising their commercial <coughs> strategies. And then the second question of transparency, and you brought it up, this question up in relation to transparency, and I want to go back to something I mentioned in my presentation as well, and I think something we'll have to have a slide about, just to explain mm. how this, this works. Because 
transparency exists on different planes and different levels and towards different different people. And I think you can you can start off in splitting up the transparency between the IGA type transparency and the sort of transparency towards the market, the more general transparency. We already have rules about transparency towards the market in terms of remit, something that's quite dear to my heart, where we say where information about prices and what has been done has been made public. And that needs to be and continues to need to be enforced. On the second level, and this is something where we made clear commitments in the energy union strategies, the availability of information about the market. Information that will help in general both participants to make their judgments, but also assist the Commission or member states to develop their policies and strategies, which is improving and bringing together the information, the data, the, the understanding, the knowledge that's there, and bringing that together. And that is something, again, that we're working on. Here, and that's a very important. That links into the sense of the IGAs being transparent towards governments in terms of helping the Commission and that ensure that the strategies that are being developed make sense. And you have the other side, you have the commercial transparency that's associated with those IGAs, ensuring that there are not cross ribbons or clauses that, that the IGAs at the commercial contracts, in effect, form one package and are negotiated largely as one package and therefore have to be assessed and analysed together. And that's where I made my comment earlier. Of course, those commercial terms can be kept confidential, which is different from the confidentiality or the general market transparency that's required under, for example, remit or other market and market uh, um, governance frameworks. Georg. I would like to, to come back to the point of demand aggregation and um, I'd like to state that there are essentially two reasons for doing demand aggregation and uh, the first reason that you would like to do a demand aggregation for is essentially the risk, uh, the, the uh, rent sharing argument. So just take the example of Russia, Russia produces gas very cheaply, Europe, Europe pays a lot of money for gas yeah, and yeah. then there is a huge trend to be made from okay. bringing the cheap gas to Europe and then the hope is that if all the European consumers were pooled together we are able to get the gas at a, uh, at a slightly lower price so we get larger share of this of this rent. Mm -hmm. That's one argument and it does not work if one single company stays outside of the whole thing because it then would conclude a better, uh, another deal with Gazprom that is more favorable for Gazprom so it will not work in a voluntary way. And I personally, as an economist, don't think it's a good idea. The second reason why you would like to do demand aggregation is uh, fighting against price discrimination. The current strategy of Gazprom in the, in the European market is sell the gas cheaply where there's competition and sell the gas very expensive where there's no competition. Every commercial company is trying to do the same thing. Um, but obviously, it's not good for the European consumers in those countries that are paying high prices. And now, especially in Poland and, and Slovakia and, and other countries, they would like to, uh, to get rid of this price discrimination to see one single European price which from their perspective would be lower. Again, in a voluntary way, which is prescribed in the, in the document, it's not going to work because why should German companies join such a scheme? Because it would mean higher prices for them because the average price will be somewhere between the German and the uh, and the, uh, uh, and the Polish price. So therefore, I think the, the voluntary demand aggregation thing that has been described in the, um, in the document is not going to, uh, to deliver anything. Uh, Jean-Michel? What I think has no interest 
because uh, I know that I was wrong two years ago, I know that I will be wrong in two years' time, so it has absolutely no interest. Um, Just tell me. However, however, what I say has an interest, which is I know that I was wrong, I know that I am wrong, but I do not know where or why. So that's the only thing I have to say. <laughs>